people pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. Well, it's crazy. It's rock and roll. It's rhythm and blues. It's comedy. It's country. It's it's front porch. It's down home. It's nasty. You know. Ah, so Jesus at McDonald's again. I was interested in the blues guys that were at the outer limits of blues. I wanted him to be Voodoo Agnew. He said, No, I got another name, Skid Roper. Golly, is it is it like Bon Jovi? And I go, no, it's not. You know. He's offending half the theater and the other half's going nuts. Well, I was going nuts. Essentially, it's just, you know, this is big. I got this video. I got Winona Ryder to play Debbie Gibson. Oh, if you make a video, let me be Debbie G. It was pretty apparent to Mojo they were never going to run the video. Putting him on the air sends a signal automatically. We're still rebellious. No, 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 no. I'm, I, you're, you're misreading my face there, Mr. Buchanan. You know, Enigma Records is getting ready to collapse. He had no illusions anymore, which meant the, the, the leash was off, the muzzle was off. Whatever line there is, we have crossed it and taken a shit on it. Carpe diem uh, rock and roll all day, every day. I fully expected Mojo was going to die on stage during those Toad Liquor shows. I am going to try to incite a riot. I mean, sometimes you just got to cut loose, you know, and just, just be free, you know. Hey folks, welcome to a special episode of The Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. On this episode, I am talking with director Matt Eske about his latest documentary. I guess it's really his only documentary, The Mojo Manifesto, The Life and Times of Mojo Nixon. If your podcast doesn't have Mojo Nixon, your podcast could use some fixing, my friends. I hope you enjoy this discussion and definitely check out The Mojo Manifesto. Go on over to the Facebook or Instagram, and you can find out when it's going to be playing at a theater near you. From what I understand, you actually have a business degree. Is that right? Yeah. So I went to Indiana University in Bloomington, Indiana, and got a business degree. But yeah, I've sort of been a lifelong musician. You know, I was always in bands. The roundabout way to being a... I got into music businesses, too. I started a record label. I started a CD manufacturing business. So I've been in... I've had my own sort of entrepreneurial music businesses after I got out of college and I was a musician, touring musician. So I was in Mojo's band, you know, I still am. So I was a touring musician and that morphed into, I ended up being a graphic designer. And so the two skills that I came into the filmmaking thing with were music, which I, you know, I knew pro tools. I knew the, the sort of like rhythms and that kind of thing of, of editing on the uh, graphic design side, I knew, you know, like Adobe Photoshop and Illustrator. And so I had that background in graphic design. So it wasn't too much of a, a thing to learn how to edit 
and shoot stuff and all that in Adobe Premiere and, and, and sort of get that happening with that background. So once I had a story to tell, I learned the medium enough to, to make a movie. Yeah. From what I understand, after you graduated, you eventually moved to Austin. When was that? I graduated late, late 80s. And then I was a bike messenger in D.C. for a while because that's where I'm from, Washington, D.C. And so I was a bike messenger and, and playing in bands in D.C. The band I was in did a tour in Austin that came through Austin. When I got to Austin, I just couldn't believe this place even existed. You know, I, I didn't, you know, coming from D.C., it just seemed so impossible that there's this place with cheap rent and artists everywhere. And they wrote about music in the paper. It wasn't just like this fringe thing. Like in D.C., it's not a legitimate thing to do. You know, you're a lawyer or you're a, you know, work for the government or something. Playing music isn't a career choice. But in Austin, it's, it is. It's, it's respected and it's thought of as being something you could do. When I got to Austin on that tour, I was like, I'm moving here. A couple months later, I just packed all my stuff in a car and, and drove here and just started playing in bands instantly. Yeah. So when did you eventually meet Mojo Nixon? I was playing in bands um, in Austin, of which there's tons to do. The other thing about Austin is there's so many gigs and so many musicians that you can play all the time. You know, it's a great place to learn how to play in a band, like for real, you know, because you can play as many gigs as you want, really, with really good people. And in most towns, you know, it's like it's hard to find the people who are interested in your kind of music and you're limited to those few people. But in Austin, there's just tons of people. So you have this wider choice of people to play with and, and really a higher level of talent in general. A couple of my buddies were in this other band and they became Mojo's backing band. Like Mojo was after he split up with Skid Roper, he was looking for a backing band. And Mojo was kind of connected to Austin and South by Southwest. And he knew people here and he just heard from all his friends. And I, I know Ely was one of them. Joe Ely, you know, there are these kids and all these guys in Austin in their early twenties who, who played roots rock, you know, and were crazy, you know, like kind of fit his punk rock roots rock sensibility, you know, Jerry Lee Lewis meets the clash or whatever. And it was, it was a perfect match. These guys were my buddies and Mojo was a perfect match. I didn't play bass at the time. I played drums, you know? So a couple of years later, they lost their bass player and they asked me if I could learn how to play bass. And I did, I learned how to play bass to play with Mojo. <laughs> End of 1993, I learned how to play bass to go on tour with these guys who were who like really good friends of mine, you know, like, so we we're all, that's why they asked me. And then by 1990, spring of 1994, I was on stage with like Jello Biafra at Liberty Lunch, you know, playing to a full house, you know, it's like, that's our path, you know, and I'd, I'd only been playing bass for like a few months, you know, so it was, it was a whirlwind and it was kind of scary, but it, the be it was the best, you know. How aware of Mojo were you when he was still with Skid Roper? I was only vaguely aware of Mojo. I, I became more aware of Mojo when he did Otis. And that's what the first song that hit me hard was actually Don Henley Must Die, not Elvis is Everywhere or Debbie Gibson or that stuff. I was more of a rock and roll guy. I mean, not that Mojo was a rock and roll, but it, it, to me, it just didn't hit me. Like what hit me was the full band thing. And I was like, man, this this is just sounds so great. I mean, I just like the mix of pop and punk and rock and roll. It just it was just so cool. And Don Henley Must Die. That's the first one that came out of the radio. And I was like, wow, what's this? I love this. It had a lot of attitude, you know. And I think maybe the earlier stuff bounced off me a little bit. Maybe it seemed 
two novelty or something like that or something like that. I don't know why, but yeah, I was aware of him though. And I, I, you know, I thought he was great. How does the idea for the documentary come about? We toured all through the nineties. So I spent a lot of time obviously in the van, you know, learning this whole story. And it was 2011 that I went to South by Southwest film and saw a movie that Mojo was in. So he was interviewed in this documentary about South by Southwest and I was like, man, he's the best thing in this movie. He's, he's just jumping off the screen. It sounded, it's just, he made the movie, you know? And I was like, oh man, that, that's what, where I got the idea is like seeing him on the screen. And then I sort of put it together with the story that I knew about, you know, Mojo and, you know, his journey from listening, you know, all the stories all the years. And so that all kind of came together. And I had, I just, I stream of consciousness wrote down, you know, the whole thing that night, how the movie I wanted to make. And this is, I'd never made a movie and never even thought about it until that moment. But I, I, you know, I sketched it all out that night and then um, started shooting it one year later. That's pretty ballsy. Just making a movie after you've never made one before and you just go, boom, this is going to be a feature length documentary. Yeah, it was definitely a leap of faith kind of thing where like it's it's so daunting that you it's hard to get started. I mean, I, I think that's true of a lot of filmmakers, maybe, you know it's such a big project. How do you wrap your head around it? I mean, it's expensive and it's time consuming and it's, you, you know, I don't know. I mean, I was driven by the story. I knew it was great. There was a lot of elements to it that made sense to me. It's like, there was a story that nobody really knew about Mojo and, and yet people knew him. Like he's famous, uh, at least in a minor way, kind of all over the world. Like if, no matter where you go, somebody's heard of him, you know? And so he was this kind of person who was known, but people didn't really know even big fans didn't know the real story about it. I I feel like I think I learned a lot during making the movie, but I think even the biggest fans don't really understand where it's all coming from. What were some of the biggest challenges making the film? Well, there was a few, obviously there's many, you know, the whole thing took 10 years by the time I was done. You know, it's hard to learn stuff, you know, it's hard to learn how to shoot an interview and like, and just things you just don't know about. And then money, you know, it's like, how do you pay for lights and, yeah, it's kind of daunting at first with the money thing, you know, buying a decent camera. And now it's a little easier. I mean, cameras are cheaper, I'd say. And yeah, at first there was like the technical challenges and, the, and the, my lack of knowledge. But, you know, the film is sort of a mishmash of like of quality. You know, some of the interviews are shot really well and some of them are are not quite as good because it's just me. I didn't have a cameraman, you know, I didn't have lights, you know. That actually fits with this because in the end, because I'm using a lot of vintage archival footage and photographs and so it doesn't feel obvious that this is like you know that there's quality differences here and there so in the end you know it really didn't matter that i didn't know that much in in my opinion you know i didn't it's some technical effect that you know not everything's perfect but in the end i don't think it really affected the movie because you know if i screwed up the sound nothing got ruined you know like there was always a way to fix it fix the color fix the you know the lighting fix the the sound everything was fixable and i was worried at a bunch of different points that i had ruined it you know an interview or something but i I really in the end i didn't yeah so that was a challenge just not knowing stuff and then this the big challenge you know was learning how to edit because i'd never edited a movie because I could shoot the stuff over a, a long period of time. I'd do an interview here, interview there, gathering stuff the whole time. But I knew editing was going to take some serious time. And so I, I waited until I closed my main music business. And that was 2018. And then I took 2019 and said, I'm going to use this year to edit. 
learn how to edit and edit. And so I did. I took a year. You know, I started in like November of 2018 and then went through the whole next year. And I just literally put up YouTube videos on one screen and my stuff on the other screen and learned how to do it like on as I went. I started with one minute and it took me forever to do the first minute. And it, it ended up in the movie. I mean, much changed, you know, it was a, that one minute did. And, and once I got one minute that I really liked, I knew I was fine because I just had to do 80 more. I took it in chunks like that, you know, one piece at a time. And and then, of course, I went back on everything and, and it, it took for, you know, it was a huge effort to make it into something that was a story and that made sense as in something somebody could watch for 85 minutes. That's a big challenge. How did the pandemic affect the film? It affected it a lot because we we're going to premiere in 2020. Yeah, we were going to premiere in South by Southwest 2020. I couldn't believe we got in. I was like, in, in a way, it's like, I, you know, I, I didn't know if it was a real movie or what somebody else would consider a real movie. I just did what I wanted to do. And I didn't know anything. So I was like, you know, I was really excited and pleased that they, they accepted it into South by Southwest. And, you know, the few people I'd shown it to really liked it. So I started to think maybe it's good, you know. Anyway, we're supposed to premiere and then it got canceled. The way I felt about it at the time was, I mean, we were really set up to succeed. I mean, you know, we showed it on the Outlaw Country Cruise, you know, right before that, at the beginning of 2020, and it killed, you know, people loved it. I mean, constant laughs and people were crying and, you know, it's like it really killed on the cruise. And so we we're like, oh, man, in a month, we're going to be at South by Southwest playing at the Paramount, which is the big theater downtown in Austin. And we're going to kill, you know, and even Mojo was like, I can't believe this. You know, this I love this movie. It's about me. And we're about to premiere it at the biggest theater in Austin. It's This is so fun. This is going to be great. Canceled. I've had enough defeats in my life to just sort of take it in stride, though. I mean, like, I was like, we'll just wait. And we don't know if it's going to be better when this is a, you know, maybe it's a good thing that we're getting a break, you know, that this is happening. Because you never know with anything in life, I feel like, no matter how bad it seems, it can always turn out to be better. And in the end, it did turn out to be better. Because in the two years gap, I found some footage that I really needed which was the Winona Ryder footage that I couldn't find before. And so now I've got Winona in the movie, which is extremely important. You know, I felt like as far as telling the story goes, it's kind of essential that you, that she's included and you see, you know, instead of just talking about her, you're hearing her and seeing her. That to me was worth it. Cause any little bit to make it better to me makes it worth it. Two years, whatever. It's a better movie. So it's, so I'm happy. Where did you get your hands on all that archive footage? Bullethead is Mojo's, you know, sort of manager for life, you know, is with him from basically the start. And he was taking pictures and gathering stuff like the whole time, like almost all the photos in the movie were taken by Bullethead. He had this huge amount of stuff, all these slides and, you know, and he had gathered all the footage and it was all on hard drives, you know, and VHS tapes and beta tapes. I had a real head start on the archival stuff. I mean, and also because Mojo was popular at a time when video cameras were starting to happen and, the, and you know, he was briefly famous at exactly that time, you know, mid late eighties, you know, there's a lot of show foot. There's a lot of footage, which is not true of a lot of documentaries. You know, I had a lot to choose from, which was made it so great. You know, most, most of the stuff nobody's ever seen, you know, I like got all these 
slides scanned. And then I got all these beta tapes from this guy, uh, Robert Gordon. And, and, and he sent me all these beta tapes that he shot during the Otis sessions. And, and that was all because Mojo was popular at the time, you know, they're doing an electronic press kit for the, for the album. And so I felt I was extremely fortunate in the archival stuff. I have to say you threw me off by starting with chapter five. Yeah. I kept wondering like, shit, is this a sequel? Did I not see the first one? That happened because I sort of found the end of the movie first and then decided, tried to, had to figure out how to make it make sense. I sort of, you know, I just thought of it in the Quentin Tarantino kind of Pulp Fiction way. It's kind of an homage. We just start there. It's out of order. And in the end, it's kind of funny. I mean, I, I like that, you know, not everybody loves it if they find it whatever confusing or something, <laughs> but I, I like the way it starts with that Otis footage, you know, I think that's kind of a cool way to start the movie. And then to me, the end is what it needs to be. And Mojo is a chaotic person, personality. And like, you might notice like in a lot of the interviews, like, you know, they're shot with a lot of chaotic stuff in the background. Some of the people I'm interviewing are drunk, you know, and they, or they just got off stage at South by Southwest or something. I was looking for chaos, you know? And so like the fact that it's sort of out of order to me makes sense. You've been working with Mojo now for... 39 years. Sorry, 29 years. Does he ever turn off? I mean, he, he tends to go real hard until he just sort of like goes to sleep. You know, he'll go hard until he hits a wall. He's just kind of comatose, you know? That's kind of his way of being. The Mojo personality is 24-7. That's just him. That's just the way he is. So, he, you know, if you go into public with him or go to eat at a restaurant, people are going to notice you. And so, you can't, you know, you have to be ready to be um, embarrassed or not embarrassed or whatever. He'll do something <laughs> that will bum somebody out or whatever. So, yeah, that that's actually him. That's kind of amazing. And it's got to be a little exhausting for you. Yeah, it's, you know, it can be exhausting. Yeah, he likes, he likes to be around people, you know, a lot. So like we'd be on the road, you know, yeah, he, he liked to have people. He didn't like to have his own room. He likes somebody there to like yell at basically. Yeah, I guess it's exhausting. I mean, you know, we did it in small chunks, you know, uh, being on the road and stuff. His wife is the, is the real trooper in all of this because <laughs> it is a lot. It's a lot to, you know, he stayed with me for five nights, you know, uh, during South by Southwest. He had a hotel for five nights and he stayed with me for five nights. We had a great time though. I mean, I, I really, he's a sweet guy, you know, he's a sweetheart and, uh, and we have a lot of fun together. So even though it's, it's a lot, it's, it's all, it's a lot of fun, you know, really. Ultimately, how did the film go over at South by when it finally showed? Yeah, it went great. I mean, and I just showed it in Boston this weekend. I mean, I was in, I was, yeah, I was up at IFF Boston, which went great. And it showed really well at, at South by Southwest. I mean, it couldn't have gone better, really. The response has been really great. And so it's been super fun. I'm looking forward to doing, I think we're going to do a lot more festivals and screenings and just signed a distribution deal. So it's going to be, you know, will be available, you know, for video on demand, you know, probably later this year, something like that. Exciting. It's super cool. I mean, because that's really the goal is to get as many people to be able to watch it as possible. That's all Mojo cares about. It's all I care about. None of it's about money. You know, it's it's just about telling the story and getting as many people to, you know, have a chance to watch it as possible. How was Mojo to work with on the documentary? Just the way he is with writers, you know, during his music career, he was he's always available, no matter how small the thing is he'll do an interview, you know, he'll, he'll give you time, you know, and he'll talk to any fan, you know, whatever he's, 
he is there to promote, you know, or whatever to just interact, you know? And so the same was true with the movie. He, you know, he liked the fact that I was doing it and he, you know, he, he sat down for lots of interviews and he was always just available to get, give me what I needed, you know, like, and I, like the hand, there's like a bunch of graphics in the, in the movie that are like handwriting and that's all his handwriting. And so I had him write all this stuff down so I could scan it in. And, and he's, he's great about that stuff. If you give him a job, you know, and he, he'll never complain, he'll do what it takes, you know, to get it done. He'll never say no. He's great to work with. And then the other part of him being great to work with is he didn't want to have anything to do with the movie as far as like what it was about. He said, show it to me when it's done. He's not a micromanager either. So like, even though he's super available to help you, you know, any other artist would be like, what are you doing? You know, like, what's this? This is about me. Like, what do you, what exactly are you even doing? He didn't do any of that. I showed it to him when I was, when it was done. Luckily he loved it. He was surprised at how good it was. Like that was his reaction. He like, couldn't, couldn't believe that it was good. Like that's kind of his basic reaction to it. So I think he's really pleased, you know, but he he was no trouble to work with at all. In fact, he was the perfect person to work with. Yeah. Are you guys going to do like music and film kind of toured around a little bit with the band and the, the film? That's the idea is that we, um, yeah, that we go to some festivals and do shows in the towns, you know, or we do screenings, you know, in places, you know, that are kind of the good mojo cities. I think we're going to start with, you know, that might be places. Like, I, I think we're planning on going to Minneapolis maybe later this year for Sound Unseen, maybe bringing the band and talked about San Diego and Houston and some of these better mojo towns. Boston's one of them too, you know, like Seattle, Portland, San Francisco, you know, some of these towns that were great towns for us when we were touring, trying to do screenings and stuff. Yeah. Nothing in the works at the moment to, to like talk about, but yeah, that's the goal is to bring the band out and do shows. Has the filmmaking bug bit you? Are you going to do another movie now? It definitely was the most like gratifying and fun thing, you know, satisfying thing I ever did artistically. I mean, I was obsessed, you know, with every second of the movie is like, I was obsessed with it, you know, like making the story, you know, telling the story I wanted to tell and how it played out. And yeah, it was, so it was just really the best to work on because, you know, anything that engrosses you to that level where you care about it so much, so all you think about is constantly talk about it and like try to figure it out. That's an exciting place to be artistically. It's just a fun place to be in life, you know, when you have something to really sink your teeth into. And so that's how I felt more. I felt more about that with the movie than anything else ever, you know. So I would love to make another one, but it's a huge mountain of work. And like I had a lot of advantages on this one. I really knew the story. I had, I had you know, Bullethead and Mojo. I had the right people to work with. I had all this archival stuff. You know, I had the right kind of subject where there was something that was, you know, it's not like making a movie about Tom Petty or something where everybody knows all the answers. You know, I thought it was cool to me. It mattered that people don't know the story. So it's a real particular kind of thing that made it more fun for me because I feel like I'm like, you know, telling a story that people don't know, you know, and, and it's worth telling. So I hope so. I hope I do another one. I'd like to, you know. Well, I can tell you're a big film fan. I mean, what, what with the one-on-one poster and Corvette Summer back there? I mean... Yeah, Mojo and I, I mean, we're big. I mean, like I was just texting with him yesterday about because I saw Three Days of the Condor finally on the plane home from Boston, and we're we're huge like '70s fans. And like, and he he Mojo has read and seen everything. He knows every movie, and so he's you know he's like, okay, next you got to watch the Manchurian Candidate, and I'm like, you know, I missed that one too. So he always seems to know the ones I missed, you know. 
so he's turned me on to a lot of great stuff. We, we talk about movies all the time. I, I have a particular fondness for like 70s, like that's Corvette Summer and One on One, and um, there's a lifeguard over there. And like just these like 70s, these cheesy 70s movies, are, there's something about them I just really like. Particularly fond of stuff like early, early, late 60s, early 70s, like a lot of people, you know, Taxi Driver, Butch Cassidy, you know, whatever, all that stuff. So where's the best place for people to go to catch up on the film and make sure that if it's coming to a theater near them, they can see it? You know, it'd be great if people could like find out what's, you know, what's currently going on with the movie through the Instagram, you know, or Facebook, you know, there's a Mojo Manifesto movie Facebook page and an Instagram account. So those are probably the best way to find out what's going on with it at the moment, because it's all kind of changing. And we're really just at the beginning here. We just premiered, just signed the deal. And so you know, there's going to be a lot more information that probably comes out through those ways, you know, for a while. Well, Mr. Esky, best of luck to you with the project. I loved it. And I hope more people get to see it. Super cool, man. Thanks so much for doing it. I really appreciate it. Came home early one night from work. Thought my wife's in bed a jerk. She's in there with a big piece of plastic. Yelling and a screaming, super daylight's creaming. She don't want my lipstick, cause she's vibrator dependent. Don't want me in it, says I don't make the right noise. Been replaced by batteries, hey there fellas, can't you see? She just wants to play with her toys. I'm getting big blisters on my hands Thinking maybe I ain't a man Man, she ain't gonna get in brag on Nate Cause she's vibrator dependent Don't want me in it Says I don't make the right noise Been replaced by batteries Hey there fellas, can't you see She just wants to play with her toys Play with them, honey Shaving her tallywhacker with a battery-powered device Me, I'm prancing around out in the living room Got the demon chism build up I mean, I got a severe case of it A lot of pressure on my brain Eyeballs turning white Grabbing my tallywhacker all the time I look her in the eye and I say, um I say, baby, 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 please Got some I need, some I want. I wanna put my face in a special place. She said, What? I wanna put my face in a special place. Yeah. I wanna get a ring around the face, honey. You know what I'm talking about when the full moon comes around. She said, Mochi Woji, you gotta do something for me if you wanna do that. I said, What's that, honey? She said, Moji, you know what you gotta do? 
You know I got these battery-powered things here. And you know I got some things that plug into the wall, put 110 volts on my tallywhacker. Mojo, I want you to go out to the store. I want you to get me something, something big and ugly. Gigantic vibrator. Vibratorzilla, it'd be. Unplug refrigerator, Mojo. Get Vibratorzilla, bring it in here and put 220 on the money, honey. I said, baby, you done got crazy. And then, Mojo, you can put your face in a special place. But you're gonna have to, gonna have to make a little noise. Down, see a nurse, cure of this terrible curse. Doctor said, lady, you're afflicted. Ma'am, you got a terrible habit. Now I told you not to grab it. I pronounce you addictive. She's vibrator dependent. Don't want me in it. Says I don't make the right noise. Been replaced by batteries. Hey there, fellas, can't you see? She just wants to play with her toys. Yeah, she's vibrator Vibrator dependency now, isn't it? No, honey, you can't plug my toes into the wall. I ain't gonna hum no more either.